Good morning, Life Church. I'm glad that you're with us this morning. Um, Brittany had you grab your Bible already, so I hope it's still in your hand and that you're ready to go. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 25 this morning, and so I'll let you find that um, as we begin together. There's an old story that's told about Martin Luther, the German monk and church reformer. Um, The story goes that Luther was one day hoeing his garden, and a friend came up to him while he was working in his garden, and he said, Martin, what would you do today if you knew that today was the last day before our Lord Jesus returned? What would you do if you knew that today was the day that Jesus was going to come back in power and glory to make all things new and to judge the earth? And supposedly Luther, he looked at his friend and thought for a moment and then replied, well, I believe I'd keep hoeing my garden. And in the 500 years since Luther lived and died, that story has been told primarily to illustrate the fact that whatever you're doing, if what you're doing is right in the middle of the center of God's will for your life, then you should do that, even if it's the day that he's returning. And so whatever it is that God has called you to do in your life, you should do that thing, even on the eve of his return. And if he has called you to hoe your garden, then by all means, hoe your garden. Well, I don't mean any disrespect to Martin Luther, but I don't completely buy that idea myself. And I imagine you don't really either. I think all of us have a sense of the way in which deadlines shape our priorities. The student who's lackadaisical at the beginning of the semester studies with a lot more earnestness when final exams are approaching. That home improvement project that you've been just slowly making progress on, chipping away at it weekend after weekend, like when company's coming over to stay, suddenly you invest in that project a lot more time and a lot more energy. You want it to get done. When a deadline looms, our priorities shift. And that's why I'm not sure that I would keep hoeing my garden if I knew that today was the day that Jesus was returning. There are some conversations I'd want to revisit. There are some people I would want to invest in. I would want to make sure that I was ready and that the people that I love the most are ready for the return of our Lord. What would you do if you knew that today was the last day before Jesus returned? What would you do with your last hours as you prepared for the return of Jesus? Now Jesus, he knew that we were apt to wonder about such things. He knew that we were likely to have these kinds of questions and and to wonder about them. And so he actually preached a sermon addressing that very idea, speaking to these very questions, that sermon It's recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. This sermon begins after chapter 24, verse 3, when Jesus' disciples come to him and they say, tell us, when will these things be? Meaning, the end of the age, the return of the Messiah. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And in answer to those questions, Jesus, he launches into a sermon. That sermon covers much about what you'd expect to need to know about the return of Jesus. 
In chapter 24, verse 36, Jesus says, concerning that day and hour, again, the day and hour of his return, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. See, Jesus knew that we were likely to have questions not just about what should happen and what should we be doing to prepare, but even when the return of Christ was going to come about. And so he made a point of saying, no one knows when my return will come. Not even the Son, the second person of the Trinity, knows in his human nature what only the Father knows when he will return. And then after making that statement, Jesus told three parables as a part of this greater sermon about the return of Christ. The third of those three parables is the parable of the talents. We're going to look at that together next week. The first of those three parables is the parable of the unwise servant. It's a parable told to explain what will happen to those who, for whom Christ comes sooner than they expected. But the second of those three parables, the parable of the ten virgins, is a parable told about servants who are unprepared for Christ's return because it comes later than expected. And that's the, serm- the parable that we're going to study this morning in Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. Church, let me read this passage for us today, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll walk through this together. Matthew 25, 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is God's word for us this morning, church. Let's pray as we begin to consider it together. Holy Spirit, we need you now. We need you to make effective my words about your word here. We need you to use this word as your instrument to bring us to life, to bring us to holiness, to ground in our hearts and minds the hope of the gospel. We need you. Apart from you, this would be a waste of our time and our efforts. Apart from you, we would make no progress. We would come to no understanding. We need you. And so I ask that you would 
Make our hearts now even ready for the work that you will do in us through your word this morning. We pray that in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Now, engagement and marriage in the time of Jesus, they worked quite a bit differently than they work in our day. Typically, a young man and woman would be married through three phases or stages in the time of Jesus. The first of those three phases was the um, promise stage. The promise stage is when a family with a young son and another family with a young daughter would enter into a legal contract promising that son to that daughter in marriage someday in the future. Usually, a significant amount of money would change hands, typically from the groom's family to the bride's family, in order to pay the price of securing that young woman's hand for that boy in marriage. Now, I know that we don't really do this in our culture, Um, There are times when I think it wouldn't be a terrible idea. I have a young daughter at home. Uh, She's very bright and very pretty. And occasionally, she starts to ask her mother questions about boys and relationships with boys. Instinctively, I, of course, want to cause physical harm to any and every boy that she might be interested in. And as her father, um, I have a lot of angst and heartache when I consider the potential heartache that is coming her way as she steps into those relationships when she is much, much older. She's listening to this much, much, much older than she is today. But of course, we don't really do this in our culture and for good and legitimate reasons. But in Jesus's culture, this is how things started. Bride's family and a groom's family would get together they would enter into a legal contract. The second stage of marriage in Jesus' day was then the betrothal stage. When the betrothal stage happened, the bride and the groom, they would make vows to one another. They would be legally married from that point forward. To end their marriage from that point forward, it required divorce. But still, at the betrothal stage, the bride and the groom, they didn't leave their family's homes and live together. That didn't happen until the end of the third stage, which is the wedding feast. After some time, often a year or more, past the betrothal stage, the bride and groom, their families would throw the wedding feast. Um, They would come together for that wedding feast, and at the end of the feast, which would sometimes be a week long or more, then the bride and groom would go home to their new home together, and only then would they be like firmly and finally married. Jesus' parable, Matthew 25, 1 through 13, it describes the very beginning of that third stage in marriage, the beginning of a wedding feast. We get the sense in this parable that finally, after those first two stages are complete and all the preparations for the feast are made, all the invitations have been sent, all the RSVPs are in, that things are ready. The only thing that needs to happen is that the bridegroom needs to arrive at the wedding feast. Now, it was customary in the time of Jesus that the bride would send the young women in her wedding party. That's really who we're talking about here. In fact, for the rest of this time that we have together, I'm not going to call these young women virgins. I'm going to call them bridesmaids. I think we'll all be a little bit more comfortable if I don't say that word virgin like a thousand times in the next 30 minutes. You have young children watching with you, perhaps, which might make things a little bit easier for you. These young women were the bridesmaids of the bride in this culture Only unmarried women would serve in the wedding party. 
And so they would, in fact, be virgins. This bride, she has sent her wedding party to the gate of the town or the city, and there her bridesmaids are called to wait for the bridegroom to arrive so that they can walk with him through the city to the wedding feast so that the wedding feast can begin. That's the setting of Jesus' parable here. As we think about this parable, we're gonna think about the three characters or groups of characters that we see and the lesson that each one of those three teaches us. So we're gonna look at the lesson first that the groom teaches us, then we'll look at the lesson that the wise bridesmaids teach us, and then finally, the lesson that the foolish bridesmaids teach us. Let's start with the groom or the bridegroom. The bridegroom in this parable, he teaches us that speculation about the day and time of Christ's return is pointless. Now apparently that's a message that Jesus' disciples needed to hear. I think certainly it's a message that people in our day, including some among us, need to hear. The bridegroom teaches us that speculation about the day and time of Christ's return is foolish. I want you to notice in the parable how Jesus exaggerates the delay of the bridegroom. Look with me at verse five. He says, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all, meaning all of the bridesmaids, became drowsy and slept. And so there's, there's a significant point there. In this parable, even the wise bridesmaids lay down on the ground and fall asleep. Even the wise bridesmaids do. We kind of expect that Jesus might tell a parable in which the foolish bridesmaids, they fall asleep, but the wise bridesmaids, they stay awake and alert and ready for the bridegroom to return. But that's not how this parable works. In this parable, the bridegroom, he is so delayed that even the wise bridesmaids sleep while they're waiting for him. A few years ago, I had the privilege of performing a wedding ceremony for two people um, who were not originally from this country, and they clearly did not come originally from our culture. They both came from cultures where time and timeliness were viewed a little bit differently than typical Americans view time and timeliness. And I started to get a sense of that because anytime I asked the bride what time the wedding was supposed to start, she would say, well, you know, I'm not really sure. I'm thinking maybe two or 2.30. And I said, okay, that's fine. Like six months before the wedding, it was fine to me that she didn't know exactly what time the wedding was going to start. I started to think things were a little bit odd though when I asked the same question six weeks before the wedding and I got the same answer. You know, I'm not really sure, maybe two or 2.30. And then even six days before the wedding, I'm like, um, do you know yet what time the wedding's going to start? And she said, you know, two, maybe, 2.30, maybe, I'm not really sure, somewhere in there. And as she answered these questions, I began to realize that she was being so evasive because she had no idea what time the wedding was actually going to start. And sure enough, she didn't, and it didn't start at two or 2.30. I remember still the day of the wedding when I was there and the wedding coordinator was there and the photographer was there and the sound guy in the church was there and all of us were there ready to go at two o'clock, only nobody else was there. Eventually at about 2.30, a few guests started to trickle in, but then those guests trickled in for more than an hour. At 2.30, when I thought, surely this is the latest the wedding will start, the bride was nowhere to be seen. The groom was nowhere to be seen. 
An hour past that, the groom arrived and he was ready to go. Eventually the bride arrived, but she wasn't dressed. And so we all waited while she got dressed, this room full of people. And then finally, once everyone was ready, hours after two or 2.30, we finally had that wedding. And so what that meant was that I just waited the entire time for that bride and that groom to arrive. And the wedding coordinator, she waited, and the sound guy and the photographer, we all just sat there waiting for the bride and the groom to arrive. And it was hours and hours before they did. But you know what never occurred to us while we were waiting those hours for the bride and the groom to arrive? It didn't occur to one of us that maybe we should lay down on the ground and take a nap while we waited for them. No, we wouldn't have done that because you don't do that if somebody's just going to be a couple of hours late to a wedding. But here in Jesus' parable, the bridegroom is so late that every single person who's responsible to wait for him to arrive goes to bed. He's that late. He's that delayed. All 10 bridesmaids, they doze off waiting for him. Now, you've probably figured out by now that the bridegroom in this parable, it represents Jesus, and his arrival represents the time of his return in power and glory. By his unusually long delay and by his late arrival, Jesus is teaching us through this bridegroom that speculating about the time of his return, well, it's pointless. The bridesmaids, they thought they knew when he would come, and they were wrong. People today, we might think we know when Christ will come, and we will be wrong too. Frankly, Christian history, it has been littered with people who thought they knew when Jesus would come back, and littered with many, many more people who longed to know when Jesus would come back and gave themselves to idle speculation about the day and time of his return. All people who have ever speculated about this have been and will continue to be wrong. Yet still, people will read the newspaper or look at the alignment of the moon or think about current events and try to process those things as evidence of the fact that the return of Christ is imminent or not imminent. Jesus' point in this parable is that such effort is futile, it's useless, it's not worth giving ourselves to. We shouldn't try to speculate about the day or the time of Christ's return, because the time of that return, we will never know it. But I think there's actually even a deeper principle here that might be more relevant to each and every one of us as we think about this parable this morning. You see, friends, this urge to know exactly the day, exactly the time when Christ will return, well, that's actually a sinful impulse. And it represents a deeper impulse that is shared by many of us, that is that we all have a desire to know things that frankly just aren't our right to know. See, only the creator possesses all knowledge. We're created. Only the creator possesses all knowledge. But I think if we measure our lives, we'll see that there are many senses in which we want the kind of knowledge that only the creator has. 
And think back to Genesis 3 with me, where Adam and Eve ate in the garden the forbidden fruit, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Ever since that day, and from that day on, all of us have been inclined to strive for and grasp for knowledge that we have no right having. I mean, I think this is why technology is so alluring and so powerfully addicting to us today. If ever there's a time when we don't know something, technology gives us the ability to pull a glowing rectangle out of our pockets and say, hey Siri, and suddenly get an answer to a question that we otherwise wouldn't have. Right? It represents to us infinite and limitless knowledge, but we shouldn't have infinite and limitless knowledge. In the same way, this is how gossip works and why gossip is so powerful. Anytime you have that opportunity to be somebody who knows something that most people don't know, anytime you have an opportunity to be the first to know something, that just seems so powerfully alluring to us. And I think this is also why people stay so dialed into our 24-hour news cycle today. The reason why people are content to sit in their living rooms with cable news on for hours and hours of the day is because we fear that we might miss learning something that we really want to learn. We fear that there's some knowledge out there that we're not going to have that other people will have, and that just kills us. But friends, what I would put before you as we think about this parable is the fact that God has ordained us to have some knowledge, and then he's ordained us not to have other knowledge. There are things that we might be able to know that he does not intend for us to know. Things that we don't need to know. And we, so we should recognize that the pursuit of all knowledge isn't holy. I mean, there's some knowledge that leads us to godliness. There's some knowledge that causes us to delight in Christ more. There's some knowledge that inspires us to worship our creator. And we should pursue that kind of knowledge wholeheartedly. But there are other kinds of knowledge that don't serve us well. And then there are even Bible teachers out there who want to teach you things that God's word says that don't, in the end, stir your affection for Jesus. In my mind, that's most of the idle speculation about the return of Jesus and its timing. Right? That's not information that stirs our hearts for the Lord. That's not information that moves us to worship him more fully. And so it's not information that we need to pursue. There are and there should be limits to what we know. And we should, as people, beware of our own hearts. If they're yearning for knowledge that we have no right to possess, and if we're yearning for knowledge that doesn't ultimately stir our hearts for the Lord. That's a lesson from the first character in this parable, from the bridegroom. Now let's consider what the wise bridesmaids teach us in this parable. The wise bridesmaids, they show us the blessing that comes to those who prepare for Christ's return. Right, verse 2 has told us that there are two groups of bridesmaids, five who are foolish, five who are wise. And then look at the distinction between those two groups in verses three and four. Jesus said, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. 
Now perhaps we'd be helped if we kind of updated Jesus' illustration to modern day just a little bit. We've already considered the fact that these bridesmaids, they are waiting for the bridegroom to come to lead him through the city so that the wedding feast can start. Often wedding feasts started at night so that people could you know, navigate their workday and their evening commute and stuff like that. And so probably these bridesmaids, they've started their wait in the evening and so they've taken flashlights with them. Five of those bridesmaids, they took extra batteries, extra oil for their lamps, extra batteries for their flashlights in case the wait was longer than they expected. And that's the difference between these two groups of bridesmaids. It's a difference of preparedness. The wise bridesmaids, they were prepared for a long wait before the bridegroom arrived. The foolish bridesmaids weren't. As a result of that preparedness, the wise bridesmaids are the ones who actually make it into the wedding feast. They're the ones who receive the blessing and the benefits of the return of the bridegroom. They entered that wedding feast. And, and by the way, it's, it's not for nothing that the Bible often uses feasts, and especially a wedding feast, as a portrait of what is to come for us in eternity. Now, maybe that's a better portrait than what normally comes to your mind when you think about eternity. Often we think about eternity in terms of like little angels, like precious moments, precious moments dolls sitting on clouds playing their harps, or perhaps we think about eternity like some kind of eternal choir rehearsal, none of which sounds particularly exciting to the vast majority of us. But who doesn't enjoy a feast? Especially a wedding feast. I mean, we all know those are the best feasts, right? Nobody pulls out cold leftovers for a wedding feast. You don't find a lot of boxed wine at wedding feasts. Wedding feasts, that's where we let it flow. No one cheaps out on their wedding feast. Which, by the way, is why I might seriously entertain offers for the hand of my daughter in marriage, right? If you have a young son or a young grandson and a pile of cash and you're interested in maybe making a promise arrangement, just hit me up online after this service is done. I need that cash so that I can pay for her wedding feast because we all know that wedding feasts, they're huge celebrations. And that's the picture of eternity that Jesus gives us to hold on to here. But I want you to notice the very best part of this particular wedding feast We see it in verse 10 when Jesus tells us, and while they were going to buy, the foolish bridesmaids were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. Church, I just would lay before you this morning the very best part of eternity. It will not be streets paved with gold as incredible as that will be to behold. It will not be a mansion with many rooms as restful and peaceful as that promises to be. And it will not be the absence of sin and death and mourning and pain that scripture promises us we will enjoy in eternity. Now the most incredible part of eternity will be the fact that the bridegroom is there. The one who loved you so completely that he gave his life for you, that he endured the limitations of humanity to come for you, 
that he bore the shame and scorn and humiliation of the cross, that he endured the Father's just wrath for your sin and for my sin if we trust him in faith. All so that we could be guests at his feast. All so that we could be seated at his table, not as enemies, but as friends, actually his adopted brothers and sisters. He will be there at that feast. We will see him face to face, not as we do now, in a mirror dimly, Paul says, but face to face. The one who loved us so utterly that he gave everything for us. We will see him. We will meet him. What glory. That's the blessing that comes to those who are prepared for the return of our Lord. And in this season especially, I do really long to hold out the hope of that to you, church. I mean, if you know the bridegroom, if you know him, and I don't mean if you know some things about the bridegroom, we do need to understand that that there is here a categorical difference between knowing things about Jesus and knowing Jesus personally. I mean, I can tell you, friends, a whole lot of facts about Cam Newton, but I don't know Cam Newton personally. I don't have a relationship with Cam Newton, and Cam Newton doesn't have a relationship with me. So I'm not talking about simply knowing some data about the bridegroom. I'm talking about knowing and being known by the bridegroom. If you know Jesus personally, if you have true saving knowledge of our Lord, then the very worst things that can happen to you in this life will simply hasten the very best thing that Christ has to give to you. In other words, the worst that the world or Satan or the coronavirus or anyone or anything else might possibly throw at you, it's death, right? And if death comes for you, then all that means for you if you are in Christ is that you get to be with Christ sooner. Church, our rest is in heaven. Our rest is not here. Then why should we tremble when trials draw near? Be still and remember the worst that can come, but shortens our journey and hastens us home. If we know the bridegroom, then the blessing that he longs to give us, it's ours. No matter what trials come, in this life. And the worst those trials can do is to take us more safely to our home with him. We get a glimpse of that here as we think about the wise bridesmaids. Now we ask, what are we to learn from the foolish bridesmaids? The foolish bridesmaids in Jesus' parable, they show us that too little preparation and too much presumption lead to rejection. Now what I need to show you is that these foolish bridesmaids, they're actually guilty of two things in Jesus' parable. We see that because they ask two questions and get two answers. And each set of question and answer is meant to reveal to us a way that the foolish bridesmaids went wrong. And so let me show you that. Look back with me at verse six. At midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, so here's the first question that they ask, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. 
But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourself. And so again, this is the issue of unpreparedness. The foolish bridesmaids, they just weren't ready to wait as long as they needed to wait. And so they were unprepared. But the other bridesmaids, they send them to the 24-hour CVS to get more oil. And they do that. But this isn't unpreparedness. It's not their only problem. Skip ahead with me to verse 11. Of course, verse 10, while these foolish bridesmaids are off buying oil, the bridegroom comes and takes the wide bridesmaids into the feast. Then verse 11. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. That's their second question. Here's the second answer. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. What was this second problem? Well, the foolish bridesmaids, they presumed upon the good nature and the kindness of the bridegroom. They assumed that he would let them in even though they weren't ready. They assumed that he would show them grace, and he didn't. He shut the door to them. He did not let them in. I do not know you, he said to them. The question we have to wrestle with, of course, is who do these foolish bridesmaids represent? I mean, at the beginning of the story, they seem like they're a part of the wedding party. But when the wedding feast starts, they're nowhere to be found. And so I think we're right to say that they are people who seem like Christians in the beginning, but who don't make it into the kingdom in the end. They start well in the Christian life, or at least they appear to, but they don't finish well. And that leads us to ask the question, how can that happen? And how might that happen among us? Well, in truth, there are a lot of things that contribute to people starting well but not finishing well in their walk with the Lord, but two come to mind especially as we think about that question. For one, some people fail to endure in faith because they're they're just not serious about putting sin to death in their own lives. Instead of killing sin, they let sin kill them. They let it grow and grow and grow in their lives until it chokes out their life with the Lord. They are in this way like the proverbial frog boiling themselves to death because they simply don't realize that the water they're in is getting deadlier and deadlier and deadlier until it is too late. And so as we think on that this morning, I do need to ask you, is there in your life a long-term sin struggle that might be slowly, almost imperceptibly, boiling you to death and killing your faith in Jesus Christ? And I hope, church, that you'll listen to me carefully on this point because I don't mean in any way that you can resist sin so completely that Jesus will love you more in the end. And I also don't mean that your eternal fate rests somehow on how well you behave in this life. No, that is not 
the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God saved us through his son Jesus while we were at our worst and through no moral effort of ourselves, but simply through trusting in his perfect and finished saving work, he embraces us as his children and then keeps us unto the end by the power of his spirit. But what I do mean today is that it is possible for sin to work itself out in your life in a way that proves that you were never really known by the Savior to begin with. You see, often in our lives, our our appetite for sin, it reveals the true condition of our heart. And so like a child who fills up on junk food rather than waiting for a meal that is substantial, if we fill our hungers with sin, then we'll lose our appetite for what we truly need. We'll lose our appetite for Jesus. We'll hunger for the things of this world and not for Jesus himself. And if our hunger for sin drives us more than our hunger for and our longing for Jesus does, then I fear that that might mean that Jesus will one day say those same words of us that the bridegroom said of the foolish bridesmaids. I do not know you. Some people, they fail to endure in faith because they fail to take their sin seriously. And that sin kills them when they should be killing it. And then the second reason that we can point to, I think very clearly from this parable, is that some people fail to endure in faith because they presume upon the grace of Jesus. And what I mean is that many of us assume that we're forgiven because we think that it's God's job to forgive us. We assume that we're forgiven because we grew up in a Christian family, because we attend church regularly. We assume that we're forgiven because we're conservative or we're Republican or we seem like a decent person. We assume that we're forgiven because we haven't committed any very serious crimes. And I do hope you know that the grace of God, it is spectacular. He will forgive anything and everything. You, you cannot out the grace of God and his forgiveness. It is free and unearned and undeserved every time anybody experiences it. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a danger in presuming upon the grace of God. I mean, the Bible, it tells us that some people get into God's kingdom very late, Right, the thief dying on the cross next to Jesus, Jesus told him, today you will be with me in paradise when he cried out in faith and repentance. But this passage is making very clear that for others, there will be a time and a circumstance when it is too late to enter into the fellowship of the bridegroom, when it is too late to be forgiven. And if we assume that we're forgiven, because there's something in our past that's disconnected from any kind of reality in our present or our future. And reveal in that that we have no true saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Then he will say of us, I do not know you. Church, the truth is there are many, many ways we can be like these foolish bridesmaids. Jesus tells us this parable so that we won't be. That's why he finishes verse 13 saying, watch therefore, for you know neither the day 
or the hour. He wants us to be ready. I'm going to close this morning with the words of an old Negro spiritual. It strikes me that the slaves working on American plantations who gave voice to this song, that there probably has never been a more prepared group of people for the return of our Lord than those who first wrote and sang these words. This is the voice of the slave. One slave sings, there's a king and a captain high, and he's coming by and by, and he'll find me hoeing cotton when he comes. You can hear his legions charging in the regions of the sky, and he'll find me hoeing cotton when he comes. There's a man they thrust aside who was tortured till he died, and he'll find me hoeing cotton when he comes. He was hated and rejected. He was scorned and crucified. And he'll find me hoeing cotton when he comes. When he comes, when he comes, he'll be crowned by saints and angels when he comes. They'll be shouting out Hosanna to the man that men denied. And I'll kneel among my cotton when he comes. Church, I hope you know today that we all will. Whatever we are doing, wherever we are, when Christ comes, we will kneel and we will worship him. For those who know Christ now, for those who are in Christ, that will be joy and delight and the beginning of the wedding feast that will last for eternity. For those who do not know Christ when he returns, they will kneel and it will be terrible. But we will all bow in worship when Jesus returns. And I say that because, I mean, just one word for you this morning. If you are watching this live stream, if you're with us and a part of this and you don't consider yourself to be a believer in Jesus, I just want to encourage you to consider, perhaps, perhaps, the reason the Lord has delayed to this point, the reason he has not come yet, is to give you one more opportunity to repent and to trust him in faith. How gracious he is to wait. How kind he is to be patient. He won't be patient forever. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would stir in our hearts a deep love and affection for your son, Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that our lives would reveal the fact, the hope, the truth that we know him, that we are known by him. Lord, we pray that we would not be content merely to have a lot of facts about Jesus in our minds, We pray instead that we would long for a a living, breathing relationship with him in our hearts. We thank you for the fact that that you have opened a door for that relationship through your grace. That all we need to do to have that relationship is to turn from our sin and to turn to Christ in faith. So I pray, Lord, that you would lead us to know Jesus. 
your spirit would work in our lives to keep us in our knowledge of Jesus so that he might never say of us, I do not know you. And then, Lord, as we wait for him in that saving knowledge of him, I pray that you would keep us steadfast and firm and help us to interpret and process the events of our world and of our lives with hope because we know that whatever comes in this life, whatever sin or Satan or sickness or death might bring to us, they can merely at worst hasten the day towards the day when we are with Jesus. May that be great comfort to us now. We pray this in your name, Jesus.